You can go ahead and uh, grab your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with us, there are some Bibles back there by the doors where you came into the sanctuary. Feel free to grab one of those. You can take it with you if you want. As you get those open, we have uh, kind of one more exciting piece of information, one more exciting thing to do this morning, and that's to announce that we've hired an assistant youth pastor uh, to work alongside Jim Stites in our youth ministry with our students, and uh, that's Erica Thomason. Whoa, there was like a gasp. Yeah, it's that exciting. You can applaud that. Um, Erica has been, uh, she's been a D group leader for the past year. She was a summer intern before that. She's gone on trips with our youth ministry uh, various times before. She's going to be an incredible addition to not just our youth ministry staff here and working with our high school, middle school girls and our families and our student ministry, but she is going to be a fantastic addition to our staff as a whole. She's going to bring a lot to us as an entire congregation. So we really look forward to her joining us. She's currently uh, finishing the school year teaching at Faith Christian Academy, so she's going to start kind of uh, coming to work with us a little bit here as the school year winds up, but then she'll jump in uh, with both feet at the start of the summer. So if you see her sometime in the near future, go ahead and and you don't need to welcome her because she already goes to church here, but you can congratulate her and encourage her a little bit. We're thrilled to have here to have her here on our staff. So when you see her, take time to affirm her in that she would love that. She was in first service and I pointed her out, which she absolutely hated. Um, she's not in this service, so I can't do that. But she comes to first service and she sits over here. So next week, if you come to first service, you might find her over there. Uh, we're going to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion, really, to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And what Jesus has been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount is, is trying to bring into clarity, into focus, what the heart of a follower of his looks like. The heart of a disciple uh, should look a certain way. He begins the Beatitudes like that, and he spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount working uh, like a microscope, if you will. Think back to like your high school biology class or uh, the last time you operated a microscope, which would have been my high school biology class. I remember this. There, there's like this table that you set your thing on that you want to microscope. And <laughs> these are technical terms. And there are two kinds of ways that you can bring that into focus. There are these coarse uh, knobs, if you will, and then there are fine-tuning kind of focus knobs as well. Jesus, for like two and a half-ish chapters, two and a quarter chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, he's operating those coarse Uh, focus knobs, if you will, and he's bringing this into picture. And now in the final portion of the Sermon on the Mount here, he goes to those fine uh, focusing knobs, and he's going to really clarify for us who's a follower and who isn't. What does a follower of Jesus look like? What does it not look like? And by the end of the Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks, we're going to have that image directly in view, and there should be no way to miss it. And so throughout the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, what he's been doing and what he's going to continue to do is basically operate a funnel. And he began that in what we have as verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. We looked at last week, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and easy is the road that leads to destruction and many find it. But narrow is the gate and hard is the path that leads to life and few find it. 
And so what he does right there at the beginning is he says, there are two types of people, those who have gone into, who have gone through the narrow gate, and those who have not. Those who have gone through the narrow gate, walking the narrow path, they are destined for life. And everyone who has not gone through that gate is destined for destruction. He spells out that in matters of eternity, neutrality is not an option. There are only two options, wide, narrow, destruction, life, easy path, hard path. And today he's going to funnel that down a little bit and he's going to say there are some people who want you to think that they have gone through the narrow gate, but they have not. They are what Jesus describes in this passage as wolves in sheep's clothing. After that, he's going to funnel us down a little bit further and he's going to say there are people who genuinely believe they have gone through the narrow gate, but they're self-deceived. They have not. They are not on the narrow path. And then finally, he's going to end by saying ultimately what this comes down to is building on a solid foundation versus building on something that's not solid. And so he's funneling us down so that by the end of the, the time you get to the final piece of the Sermon on the Mount, there's no ambiguity about who's a follower of Jesus, whose heart is following him, who's been given this new nature thanks to the work of Christ on their behalf, and who has not. And so we're still kind of up at the top of that funnel. And it's as I was putting this together, I kept thinking about the place where uh, we take our dog when we go out of town. And it's this veterinary center where during the day, the animals that are there, dogs, cats, gerbils, I don't know what else you take there. Um, they, they go to this like doggy daycare, kitty daycare kind of thing, and they can just play with each other. And I kept thinking about, picture yourself as someone working in the cat daycare room, which sounds awful. <laughs> Maybe not to you, but it sounds like there are two kinds of people in the world. And it sounds terrible to me. But you're in the cat daycare room, all right? And there's one cat in there who just doesn't seem to fit in. It refuses to use the litter box. It's annoying all the other cats with its attempts at friendship. It just desperately wants to play with the other animals that are in there. And you're thinking to yourself, what is wrong with this cat? So you decide to take a closer look and this is what you see. Not a cat, but wants you to think it's a cat. Jesus says there are people that are not on the narrow path, who have not entered the narrow gate, but they want you to think that they have. That's what we're looking at this morning. They want you to think they've entered through the narrow gate, they're walking on the narrow road, but they haven't. They're not self-deceived. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. They're intentionally trying to portray themselves as something that they're not. And so in verses 15 through 20 here of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus lays this out for us. Here's what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We're going to look at this in three pieces this morning. We're going to talk about false followers 
you say, Tim, but the text says false prophets. Yes, I'll explain that in a minute. We're going to talk about fruit, and then ultimately we're going to end up talking about the fate of these people. So beginning with false followers, two things we know for sure about false followers. The first one is that they will come. Jesus says it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. He doesn't say if they come to you. He doesn't say they might be out there. They are going to come. When Jesus says this, he speaks from historical fact. You can go back into your Old Testament and find tons of examples of individuals who spoke false prophecy on behalf of the Lord. You can look throughout First and Second Kings and see them all through there. You can look at Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. And the people of Israel are commanded to be on alert for these false prophets, these people who are speaking falsely about God. You can also look through your New Testament and see that not only does Jesus speak from historical fact here, but he also talks about something that's going to happen in the very near future for the church. Right off the bat, the church begins to have an issue with people who are teaching falsely about the gospel. You can see it in Galatians and 2 Corinthians. You can see it in 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Peter. That as these people are writing to the church, they're saying you've got to be alert You've got to be aware of the fact that there are individuals out there who are teaching falsely about the gospel. And then the history of the church from Acts all the way up to today and into the future has been riddled with these individuals who speak and teach false things. They teach lies about the gospel. So Jesus speaks with this accurate eye toward the distant future. They're going to come. You can't avoid it. They've come in the past. They're going to come in your lifetime, disciples. They're going to come throughout the history of the church. Here's the positive news, though. They can be distinguished. You can separate out who is true and who's a false prophet. In fact, the Bible actually commands us to go about this process of trying to discern these things. In 1 John 4, 1, uh, we're told, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We'll get to the ins and outs of how exactly do we tell false from true in terms of people speaking about the gospel. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to point out one more thing here just right off the start. And that's that verse 15 certainly sets the context for the rest of this passage that we're talking about false prophets. A prophet being someone who speaks on behalf of the Lord. That what Jesus is saying is that there are people who are going to come and they're going to speak on my behalf and they're just, they've not entered the narrow gate. They're not true followers of mine. But we would be remiss if we didn't also point out that this passage illustrates a truth about every believer of Jesus Christ. You see, when I stand up here on a Sunday morning, I'm well aware of the fact that the Bible says I'm going to be held accountable for the things that I teach that there is a high standard and that I'm going to be judged according to it someday. And I and, and anyone else who stands up here on our teaching team and teaches you on a Sunday morning is well aware of that. And the weight of that and the reality of that weighs heavy on our minds and on our hearts. And so we do the best we can to, to truthfully and accurately handle Scripture as we explain it to you. The Bible is also clear, though, that every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ becomes a proclaimer of the gospel. That when you place your faith in Jesus, when you are saved, you get the command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. 
when you become a believer, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are given the mandate to explain to people the gospel, to speak the gospel to people, to be the mouthpiece of the work of Jesus Christ out into the world. So these words are certainly true about the people who stand up here and do this kind of thing, but they're also true about every believer, every person who claims to be a believer as they talk about the gospel out in the world. And what we know to be true is that your proclamation of who Jesus is should flow from your declaration of having placed your faith in him. So in a sense, these false prophets, before they say anything errant, are lying to you about following. It would not be hard for you to distinguish whether or not I was genuine in my belief about Jesus Christ if I didn't even, if someone got up here and they didn't even pretend to follow him. They got up to talk about Christ on a Sunday morning and they weren't even putting on an act. It's just they were you know, living wildly. There was no fruit in their life, which is what we're going to get to. But no, Jesus says there will be people who come to you and speak on behalf of the gospel and they are lying. They're lying. They're lying about following me. They're lying about the truths of the gospel. They're false followers. They're false prophets. And you've got to be able to distinguish. And thankfully we can. And how we can is all about fruit. It's all about fruit. In matters of eternity, fruit is the evidence of the presence of saving faith. We need to just stop on this slide for a minute. Fruit is evidence. Fruit is not the grantor of saving faith. Fruit is not the thing which gets you through the narrow gate. Fruit of your life isn't going to be the thing where you stand before the Lord after your death in judgment and he says, there's not enough good fruit here out of my presence. That's not how this works. Fruit is the evidence of the presence of saving faith. The only thing that's ever getting you through the narrow gate is faith in the person and life and work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf and his raising three days later. Faith in that is the only thing that gets you saved. Jesus says the proof of having put your faith in that is the fruit of your life. We can't get those things mixed up. I think as the church, sometimes we want to jump to the fruit and say, this person either has enough of it or they don't have enough of it. Like, we can quantify it somehow. The only judge here is the Lord, and you'll see that in the text. But Jesus makes it clear that fruit provides evidence. It doesn't achieve your salvation. It provides evidence of your salvation. Notice that he says there are only two types of trees. Good trees that bear good fruit. Bad trees or diseased trees that bear bad or diseased fruit. There are only two options, no third option. We talked about this last week too. You're either one or the other. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. There's not good trees, good enough trees, and bad trees. There aren't good trees, decent trees, and bad trees. He says there are only two. There's no third option here. There's not really good trees, trees that are trying hard, and trees that are bad. Two, two options. Good tree, bad tree. Neutrality is not an option here. You're either a really big, strong oak tree that survives Midwestern storms, or you're a Bradford pear. And you just crumble when the wind goes over 10 miles per hour. If you've got Bradford pears, I'll pray for you, because it's going to storm over the next few days. 
And he says, sometimes it's hard to tell, but eventually the fruit of a tree gives it away. And so maybe this seems a little bit self-explanatory, but it's important to define our terms. And so fruit, when the Bible talks about fruit all throughout the New Testament, it's talking about more than merely the deeds, the behaviors of people. Fruit is the produce of a person's heart. If you've grown up in church, when you hear someone talk about fruit, you probably think of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against things there is no law. That's what we think about when we think about fruit. And that's a wonderful list, right? But these aren't merely actions. They certainly include actions. They're not merely things people say. They certainly include the things people say. These are dispositions of the heart. They're produce of the heart. When Jesus starts talking about fruit, he's talking about the produce of who you are at your very, very core. It harkens back to the Beatitudes where he started the Sermon on the Mount. That a person who follows me, Jesus says, has a particular heart disposition. They're humble before me. They realize their spiritual bankruptcy. They hunger and thirst for righteousness and are filled. They get filled by their faith in Jesus Christ. That that kind of person has a heart that produces something totally different than if you hadn't placed your faith in Jesus. You cannot hide your fruit. That which a person is at their very core is bound to display itself to the world. Your inner nature is ultimately going to show itself in your outer behavior. The reality of your heart is eventually going to proclaim itself to everyone around you. Who you are at your core is going to become apparent to the rest of the world. I'm not sure how many more ways I can say that. But you can't hide it. It might take time for it to show itself, but you can't fake your fruit. John Calvin says it this way, nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than righteousness. If it's not there, sooner or later, it will show itself. Jesus gives this really brief illustration about grapes and thorn bushes and figs and thistles. He says, you can't go out to a thorn bush and find grapes. You could go out to a thorn bush and take some grapes and hot glue them on there or staple them on there. But what would eventually happen to those grapes? They would shrivel up and die. Because that thorn bush cannot produce fruit. That thistle cannot produce figs. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, true good, true righteousness cannot come from evil. And so how is it that we distinguish these two things? These false prophets versus true followers. False followers versus true followers. I want to give you two ways to do that. The first is to look at the fruit of their preaching. When I say preaching, don't think about the person who stands up here on Sunday morning. I needed a P word, you'll understand later. When I say preaching, I just mean the things that a person says when they talk about Jesus. One of the ways you can tell if someone is truly in the faith is by what they say. And I'm not talking about whether or not a person cusses or uses a lot of foul language. That stuff's important. But I'm talking about what do they say when they talk about Jesus and sin and humanity and God and salvation. I want to give you five questions to ask yourself to help you identify false preaching. Here's the first one. Is there clarity about the holiness of God? If anybody's going to accurately and rightly talk about the gospel, they've got to begin with the character of who God is, that he is holy and righteous and can have nothing to do with sin, that he is just 
that he's merciful, but that he's absolutely holy. I think it's easy for people to talk about God being love, being loving. It's not so easy for people to flip to the other side of that coin and say, yes, he's absolutely loving, but he's also absolutely holy. Our sin cannot be in his presence. A lot of times you'll hear someone say, well, I really like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He seems angry and cranky, and he's casting judgment on people. Well, the God of the Old Testament is the exact same God of the New Testament. It's just that all of his anger and crankiness was poured out on Jesus. It's all there on full display while Christ is hanging on the cross. God's just as angry and wrathful about sin in the New Testament as he is in the Old. It's just that Jesus catches the full brunt of it on your behalf. If someone's going to accurately talk about the gospel, preach, speak about the gospel, they're going to have to talk about the holiness of God. The second thing they're going to have to talk about is the sinfulness of sin. It's pretty easy to leave that part out of the whole message of the gospel and try to talk about Jesus, but not talk about the fact that I deserve, we deserve what Jesus got on the cross. If someone's going to accurately preach, talk about, speak the gospel, they're going to have to talk about the fact that we are sinful and broken beyond repair, that we cannot fix ourselves and that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, all of it placed upon him. Is there clarity about the work of Jesus, fully God, fully man, dying in our place, taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of all of humanity so that anyone who places their faith in him, in his work, and in his resurrection might have his righteousness given to them? Is there clarity about the narrow gate? You could find plenty of people willing to preach to you, talk to you about wonderful principles out of the Bible and yet never actually place a stake in the ground and say, and here's the only way to heaven. Jesus made that clear. Enter through the narrow gate. Wide, narrow, destruction, life. There's only one way. And is there clarity about the hard path? Maybe one of the the things that people shy away from talking about the most is that once you place your faith in Jesus, you've got to part with sin. That's a process. It's ongoing for the entirety of your life. It requires submission to the Holy Spirit. But you have got to begin walking after Jesus so that when you die, you look more like Christ, more sanctified, more living in the image of Jesus than you have at any point in your entire life. But people shy away from that. To shy away from that is to skew the reality of the gospel is to teach falsely about what it means to follow him. Five really good questions to ask yourself to identify if someone is teaching accurately about the gospel. Are there other things you could ask? Absolutely. But I think those five are at the core of the truth of the gospel. If someone is going to proclaim Jesus Christ in all of his fullness, they have got to wrestle with those five issues. They've got to make them very clear that God is holy, that he can have nothing to do with sin, and we're sinful, that he sent Jesus to take the punishment of sin on our behalf, and that the only way by which we are saved is to place our faith in him, and that that's a narrow gate, and there's only one way through it, and that after we've gone through it and placed our faith in him, we live a life that submits to him, and we become increasingly molded into his image. Someone who's going to teach accurately about the gospel has got to include 
those five things. More often than not, a false teacher, someone who speaks falsely about the gospel, isn't going to stand up and speak heresy, blatant lies. They're going to leave things out. They're going to leave out the fact that God is holy. They're going to leave out the fact that we are marked by sin and cannot save ourselves. They're going to leave out aspects of who Jesus is or leave out the fact that he's the only way. It's a lot harder to discern that. It's easy if somebody were to stand up here and preach something false to say, that's not true. That's not true. It's a lot harder to listen to the bulk of what someone says about the gospel and say, you're leaving some key things out that are absolutely essential. But we're called to do that, to discern between what's true and what's false. The second thing to look at is the fruit of someone's practice, their behavior. Later in in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. Let me put that in the language of the Sermon on the Mount here. He says, You look like sheep, but you're a wolf. You look like someone who has placed their faith in Christ because you follow the letter of the law, but you don't follow the heart of the law. There's something inside of you that as it's working its way out, ends up looking false. You're not genuinely following. Last week, uh, I said that one of Satan's greatest lies, one of his greatest accomplishments in lying to humanity is getting us all to believe that we're born on the narrow path and that until we sin really grievously, we stay there. But after a certain amount of sin, then we get over onto the wide path. That's not true. We're born on the wide path. Faith in Jesus puts us through the narrow gate. I think one of Satan's other great lies is that Christianity is just something that we add to our life. That you are living in a particular way, and then you become a Christian, and you just add it on to who you are. That would be like hot gluing the grapes onto the thorn bush. Here I am, this is who I am, and now I'm just going to glue some grapes on. I'm going to try and give myself some fruit. That's a lie. It's just not true. Unique about the Christian faith is that it's all about a total heart change. That who you are at your very core becomes something vastly different. In fact, radically different. 180 degrees opposite when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. The heart of Christianity is all about the heart of a human being. And that's not just like your emotions. It's the very center of who you are. When you put your faith in Jesus, the absolute core of who you are changes. You don't just add good stuff to your life. You don't just add some positive virtue into your heart. You get a brand new heart and everything about you changes. This is kind of a lengthy quote. It's from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor. And so I'm going to read this whole thing. Kind of hang with me. I think it's incredibly instructive here. He says, To be Christian is something central to personality, something vital and fundamental. It's not a matter of appearance on the surface, either with regard to belief or life. In using this picture of the character, the nature, the real essence of these trees and the fruit which they produce, our Lord is putting very great emphasis on this. The danger here is to try to make ourselves Christian by adding certain things to our lives. Instead of becoming something new, instead of receiving life within, instead of the very nature which is within us being renewed after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's why the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. Because there's got to be a new heart within a person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. The person whose heart is an image of the Beatitudes is the person who's truly following after Jesus. And eventually, that heart is going to play itself out in some fruit. A true follower has good fruit, Jesus says. A false follower's life displays bad fruit. In matters of eternity, fruit provides the essence of the presence of saving faith. After laying all of that out, Jesus moves from the fruit of this tree to the fate of these trees. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like last week, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything here. A tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Last week, we did a little Greek lesson about the word destruction. It literally meant the word destruction. This week, Greek lesson about the word fire, fire. There's there's nothing else there. He's being incredibly clear. He's laying it out very, very simply. If you've got your Bible, just it's probably three pages over. If you want to flip to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew records for us Jesus' words in the parable of the weeds. It begins in Matthew 13, verse 24. I'm just going to read this in its entirety. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, seed, or sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So his servants said, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Gather them to be burned. Bundle them together. But he says about the wheat, let it be gathered into my barn. That sort of language is used by Jesus throughout his ministry. That those who are truly following him are going to be gathered into his presence for all of eternity. And those who are not following him are going to be separate from him for all of eternity. And in that place of separateness, there is destruction. And there's, there's only one way out of the destruction, and it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Two options. Good tree, bad tree. Narrow gate, wide gate. Notice that Jesus says here, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The issue isn't about ceasing to bear bad fruit. That if you could just live in such a way that you stopped producing bad fruit, then you would be okay. That's not true. There are some wonderfully moral people out there who haven't placed their faith in Jesus. They haven't entered through the narrow gate. But just because they aren't actively bearing bad fruit does not mean that they've become a new tree. You might be here this morning and you might be thinking to yourself, well, I've lived a good life my entire life. And I would say to you, that's not going to cut it in the end. The fruit of your life is not what's going to save you. The faith in Jesus Christ is what's going to save you. You've got to become a new tree. You've got to become a good tree. 
by placing your faith in Jesus and receiving a new nature. I think it'd be easy for someone to jump into reading the Sermon on the Mount at this point, uh, beginning with the wide and the narrow gate and down through the end and think to yourself, man, Jesus is really being judgmental here. I mean, he's really harping on people about the fact that they're going to be destroyed. Over the course of this series, um, since January, I've probably read the Sermon on the Mount start to end like upwards of 50 times. And every time I get into this conclusion part, I begin to see it more and more differently. I don't think Jesus is harping on destruction just so he can talk about destruction. I think he's pleading with people to find life. I think he's pleading with people to enter through the narrow gate, to become a good tree, to bear good fruit, to walk the narrow path. He can't do that without accurately talking about the other side as well. They both are realities. He's got to talk about them both. Jesus is pleading with people to bear good fruit, but the truth is that in order to bear good fruit, you've got to become a good tree, and you only do that by faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to close this morning with a worship song. So, Joel, if you want to come on up. And as we do, um, I want to I tell you why it is that I get to the end of this, and I think Jesus is really just pleading with people. And it comes from while he's hanging on the cross in the midst of unbelievable pain and, and torture and humiliation, and there are people who are uh, spitting at him and mocking him in the midst of his pain. And he looks down at them, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't think Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and just wants to beat people over the head with the reality of hell. I think Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he just wants to beg people to follow him truly and to find life. He wants you to find life. If you're here this morning and you've not ever actually stepped into life, I want to invite you to do that today. After Joel plays this song, we're going to, we're going to close. I'm not going to come back up. I'm going to be over here uh, on the side. If you're someone who's here this morning and maybe you realize I've been stapling grapes to the thorn bush for quite some time, but as I hold up the mirror of Scripture here and I look at myself, I realize there's no good tree present. I want to encourage you to come over and talk to me. We would love to pray with you this morning that you might receive a new nature, that you might go from good to bad, from wide to narrow from bad to good, I'm sorry, we don't want to go the other way, that you might go from bad to good, from wide path to narrow path, that you might find yourself with eternal life. If you need that this morning, I'm going to be right over here. Please come over and find me. Please stand and